Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. I feel like we've got Paul pretty converted. Robbie converted him last night, and I converted him again this morning. So we're going to move past Paul's conversion. It will come up again in Acts, but I think we've pretty well got him on the right side of the fence. So we're going to pick up in verse 32. The Acts of the Apostles, some people would even describe them as the Acts of Peter and Paul. We start out with Peter, we move to Paul, we're kind of we're coming back to Peter, then we'll go back to Paul. You get the rhythm. It's the two main characters. There's other characters like Stephen uh, et al., but the reality is these two do get most of the spotlight and the long uh, speaking parts in the Acts of the Apostles, and Paul's just had his conversion. So now we'll go back to the one we started with, with Peter, and then we'll, in a few chapters, go back to Paul. Now it came about, verse 32, as Peter was traveling through all those parts, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, as Peter was traveling through, some translations call it traveling about, evidently Peter was on a preaching campaign where he was traveling and preaching the gospel and he stopped at Lydda to visit the saints there in verse 32. Well, there are two miracles that take place here. Let's look at the first one. The first one happens to Aeneas, verse 33. And he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Aeneas had been a paralytic for eight years running. In fact, we... The main message here from Luke is that as a result of Aeneas' healing, people turned to the Lord. That was the purpose of the miracles of Jesus in the gospel, that the miracles were a sign that pointed to something more than just physical healing, but to the Lordship of Christ and to the healing of men's souls. So as the miracle is done, the folks respond by believing in Jesus. The next one's even more powerful than that in verse 36 through 43. Now, in Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. Now, Peter's still in Lydda, but in Joppa, a little ways, about uh, three, day, three hours journey away by foot. So Peter's close on foot, three hours away. There was a certain disciple named Tabitha which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. So he gives you both of the languages of her name, but both Tabitha and Dorcas mean gazelle. So it's a nice name for a lady to have. Dorcas doesn't sound like gazelle to me, but it means gazelle. The woman was abounding in deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Stop right there. Have you ever thought about that, about Tabitha or Dorcas? The woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. We've got a lot of Tabithas in our church, women who do continually deeds of kindness and charity. Well, Tabitha was known by the fact that she was willing to help anybody do anything. 
She worked her hands raw, taking care of the widows and the church, abounding in deeds of kindness and charity. You might want to have the pastor say that about you at your funeral. I'd rather have Luke say it about me in the book of Acts. That's pretty high recommendation, don't you think? Say her name, Tabitha. Oh, Tabitha. I know Tabitha. Yes, she is always doing everything for those widows. It came about she fell sick and died. When they had washed her body, they laid it in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, again, we're about a three days journey by foot. They go and tell Peter to come. Please come. She's, she's dead. Tabitha is dead. Do not delay to come to us, verse 38. And Peter arose and went in with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. Now, this must surely sound familiar to you. It sounds like Jesus going to the upper room for Jairus' daughter. You remember that? The upper room and the mom and dad are there in the upper room. He puts everybody out. You remember that? They take him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body said, Tabitha, arise. Sounds just like what Jesus said. Uh, to Jairus' daughter. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, calling the saints and widows. He presented her alive, and it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Again, the miracle led to what? Belief in the Lord. It came about, he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner named Simon. This story reminds us of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter in the upper room, but it also reminds us of other such stories. It reminds us of Elijah and the healing that took place, or Elijah and the time that he had a healing. And even the way it says Peter presented her, it reminds us that Elijah gave the widow of Zarephath back her son, or in Luke 7, by the same author, you remember the funeral procession, Jesus and the disciples are going into the city of Nain, and the widow and the ones bearing the casket of her son are coming out, and we have this collision of Jesus' and disciples entering at the gate, and the funeral procession leaving the gate, and Jesus stops the funeral procession, and he raises the dead. And I love that passage in Luke where it says, and Jesus gave her back her son. Wow. So every mom who's lost a child, on that day, he will give you back your son or your daughter. Well, in the same fashion, Peter presents Tabitha to the, to the widows. I love this passage here. When Peter gets there, notice he, he finally arrives, and look at verse 39. When Peter arose and went with them, when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping, showing the tunics and garments that Dorca used to make while she was with them. In other words, when someone really works in the church and makes a difference for the kingdom, you wonder what you're going to do when she's gone. That's the way it was with Dorcas. 
In fact, the room is filled around her body with widows. In that day, there was no social security system. If the widow didn't have a son to take care for her, she was in trouble. That's why it was so important that Jesus give back the widow of Nain, her son, or Elijah give back the widow of Zarephath, her son, because the son was the social security for the future of the widow. The widows have nothing, and while they're there in the upper room around her body, and Peter walks in, the first one said, well, you know what? I, the very robe I'm wearing, she made for me. And the lady said, you don't say. Well, she made the one I'm wearing. And the third lady said, are you kidding me? This shawl I got on, Dorcas, well, she made that with her own hands. It took her four months to make it, not by not. I never thought she would finish, but she did. And they just began to show all the things that Dorcas had done. When Dorcas died, there was a vacancy, a hole in the ministry of the church at Joppa. Who would show the tunics you've made? If you died, who would say, he did this for me, he did this for me, she did this for me? Of course, it doesn't have to be a tunic, but what is it that you have decentered your life from being about you and have served those who are on the margins of life like Dorcas did? So that at your death, the widows filled the room, those marginalized society that would not have had garments had it not been for Dorcas's hands. They needed Dorcas alive. She was their source for their garments. Look what she made me. Look what she made me. That's the sweetest story, isn't it? We just read through that one way too quickly. Those ladies had lost the one who cared for them. Peter got the message. You got to do something about Dorcas. We need Dorcas back. But Peter sent them all out, just like Jesus sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning the body, said, just like Jesus said to the daughter, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, when, and when she saw Peter... She sat up, and he gave, her, he gave her his hand and raised her up. And I imagine he said something like, there's a lot more tunics that need to be made. I'm sorry to bring you back. You had trusted Jesus, and you were on the other side, and it was all good for you. But I've got a room full of widows, and they need garments for years to come. You're too young. You've got a lot more sewing to do. Get up and get busy. Look at the end of verse he called the saints, verse 41. He, ra- he gave her his hand. He raised her up. He called the saints, I love it, and the widows, the ones for whom she had made the tunics. And he presented her alive. There's the power right there. He presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Now, the end of chapter 9 places the hook to chapter 10. 
Because in chapter 10, we need Peter to be in Joppa. How does he get to Joppa? He gets there to raise Dorcas. Now there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. End of verse 43, Peter goes to the house of Simon. Now Simon, of course, shares the same name with Peter. Don't let it get confusing. We have Simon Peter, and we have Simon the tanner. A tanner is one who works with leather and leather goods. I know nothing about tanning leather, but apparently the sea is a good place to be if you're a tanner. You're processing the skins, and it involves the salt water, and so tanners like to live by the sea to wash their wares in the process of tanning. But he's there for a reason because the certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Caesarea is some distance away north of Joppa. They're also on the coast, the coastal plain of Sharon in northern Palestine on the shores of the Mediterranean, about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Now, Cornelius was a common name. There are a lot of common names that we have today, and some are more and more. Uh, I, I was talking to Judy here a minute ago. We named Jordan Jordan. I thought, well, that's a unique name. Girls aren't named Jordan, and we thought that would be a unique name. There were six Jordans in First Baptist Church Sunday School by the time it was over. Names become common. Well, if there are a lot of little Jordans at First Baptist Church, there were a lot of Corneliuses everywhere because... In 82 B.C., Cornelius Sulla liberated 10,000 slaves. And if Cornelius Sulla liberates you as a slave and you have a son, what do you name him? Cornelius, you see? So everybody who had gotten their freedom because of Cornelius named their boy Cornelius in gratitude for receiving their freedom as they established themselves in Roman society. Now, Centurion was a non-commissioned officer, started, you know, not by going to West Point, but by starting in boot camp and working his way up to the ranks to make himself over the command of a group of soldiers. But notice how verse 2 he's described. He's a devout man. He's one who feared God. If you write in your Bible, you might underline feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. A God-fearer became something of official description. Whenever you see in Scripture someone feared God, you might write God-fearer above that. A God-fearer was someone from a pagan culture who was attracted to the one God of the Jews. He wasn't yet willing to cross over and be circumcised to become Jewish in that sense, but he knew the Jews had something he didn't have. And in fact, notice to whom he gives his tithe, his alms, to the Jews. You see that? And so you can see how God-fearers were the perfect people to be called into Christianity because they could still worship the God of the Jews, and yet they weren't forced to become Jews because they, as Gentiles, could be followers of Jesus. So he's a devout man, a God-fearer, and one who 
gave alms to the Jewish people, and he was always praying to the God of the Jews. About 3 o'clock, verse 3, he saw a vision, an angel of God, who had just come to him and said to him, Cornelius, fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, throughout the New Testament, well, in the Old Testament as well, when one has a divine visitor, an angelic visitor, the, the one receiving the visit is always startled. It's never an easy thing. Cornelius, what is it, Lord? He's alarmed. Usually the word fear is used. What is it, Lord? What do you need me to do? It's kind of like a, a sacrifice, an aroma, the alms you're giving to help the poor Jews, and your prayers, even though you're not a Jew, they have arisen as an incense and a memorial before the God of Israel. Now I want you to send some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who's also called Peter. He's staying with a certain tanner named Simon. We already know where he lives. Where? By the sea. So chapter 9 got Simon Peter at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa by the sea so Cornelius would know where to go to retrieve Peter to come and preach. And when the angel who was speaking to him had departed, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier, sent three, and they were those who were in constant attendance upon him. He explained everything to them, and he sent them to Joppa. So he sends them on a mission. The next day, verse 9, they're on their way and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop at about noontime. Now this is a familiar story and a powerful story. Someone is preparing the meal and Peter goes up on the rooftop, probably an exterior stair upon which he ascends. He's hungry. Is there any, it's terrible to say, is there any time more hungry than when someone's preparing the meal and you can kind of smell it and know it's coming and you just wonder, is it ever going to get there? He was desiring to eat. Verse 10, he was hungry and desiring to eat. We all have something, you can tell people we have something in common with the Apostle Peter. You're hungry and you're desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into the trance. He's sleepy, he's hungry, he's on the rooftop, and all of a sudden he sees the sky open. And a certain object, like a great sheet coming down, lowered by the four corners of the sheet to the ground. And on it, there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures, call that reptiles, of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Now, Peter, being a fisherman didn't have the scruples of an apostle Paul of keeping all the law. And so, and even as a Christian, probably some of his inherited and trained prejudices were gradually wearing thin. But was Peter ready to go and preach to the Gentiles that they need to receive Jesus? Absolutely not. 
It would take a divine intervention, a holy moment for Peter to think that this good news about the Jewish Jesus was also for the Gentiles. This is one of the most important texts in all of the Acts of the Apostles. For here at this moment, remember how we began in chapter 1 and verse 8? You began in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We've done all those things, and now we've got to go to the uttermost part of the earth. These are Gentiles, not even half-Jews. So Peter needed a special revelation. He sees this sheet lowered by the four corners his four-footed animals, reptiles and birds, and the voice commands Peter, get up, go eat. He's hungry. Well, even though he wasn't a keeper of the law quite like Paul, he did observe the Leviticus 11 dietary restrictions, and he knew the difference between a clean quadruped and an unclean quadruped the cleans chewed the cud and had the cloven hooves. And what's interesting on this sheet is they're clean and unclean mixed together. Don't think of it in your mind as just unclean animals. It's a mixture of animals he could eat and a mixture of animals he could not eat. It's all creatures together on the one sheet, all kinds. And the command comes, kill and eat. Well... Peter says, by no means, Lord, I, I could not possibly do that. And the voice says, verse 15, what God has cleansed, no loader, no longer consider unclean. Sometimes God has to repeat a message for us to get it, and he says no, and again he has a vision again, and God says go, kill and eat, and he says no, Lord, and it happens yet a third time, the message to kill and eat. Look at verse 16. This happens three times, and immediately the object was taken up out of the sky. While Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men were knocking at the door. The ones asking for directions for Simon's house appeared at the gate. Hey, is there a guy named Simon Peter staying here? And even while Peter is pondering the vision he's had, the Spirit says to Peter, there's three men looking for you. They're not selling vacuum cleaners. That's not exactly what the text says, but it's something like that. There's three men looking for you. They're not selling vacuum cleaners. I want you to go with them. Arise, go down that exterior stairs, verse 20. Accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. There's three guys there. I sent them to get you. It's all going to come together for you. And Peter went down, verse 21, to meet the man and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? Why has God sent these messengers? And they tell the story. Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man. There's the word, God-fearer. Well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by an holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. We work for this guy named Cornelius, and he's a centurion, and everybody likes him. He really is a great guy. And, well, he got a divine message to send for you because you have a message for him. 
Peter would have ordinarily never imagined himself having a message for Gentiles gathered as they were in Caesarea. That's not the way he imagined himself as a preacher, to be sure. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. On the next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So not only did Peter go, some of the believers in Joppa went. It's good. We needed some eyewitnesses as to what was going to take place. And the following day he entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was waiting for them. Cornelius had gathered his whole house together and said, Man, I saw this angel, and he told me to go and get this guy named Simon, and I'm bringing him, and I want you to be here. He's got something to tell us. There's never been a more ready audience to hear a sermon. They're all gathered together. And when Peter walks in, Cornelius hits the ground and begins to worship Peter. If the angel tells you to get the guy, you better worship him. Peter says, Get up, get up. I'm just a man too. What are you doing? Verse 26. He found all the people assembled, and I know Peter's saying, what has the Lord got me into, all these Gentiles? In fact, Peter's so uncomfortable, he says in verse 28, now you yourselves know it's not lawful for me to be here. I'm a Jew. Why would I associate with a foreigner or visit with him? Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. God has shown me I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason, why am I here? Cornelius told him the story four days ago to this hour. It was several days' journey. I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood beside me in shining garments. And angels are described as usually a blazing white or a shimmering, shining garment. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send to Joppa and invite Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying at the house of Simon, the tanner by the sea. And you've been kind enough to come now. We are all here present before God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said. Now, what we've been studying forever and what do we talk about this morning? The early sermons in Acts that give you the gospel of the apostles. Well, here's another one. Here's Peter. If Peter can't preach the gospel, I don't know who can. He's preaching to Gentiles. Peter opens his mouth. Well, here's what he preaches. Here's his sermon. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. Don't miss that. Do you miss that when you read that? He's saying to the people in Caesarea, to Gentiles, you know the thing that has happened. What happened with this rabbi Jesus in Jerusalem, his crucifixion, the claim of the resurrection, it was big. It was not done under the radar. People knew about the crucifixion, the resurrection. In fact, he says to these 
Gentiles in Caesarea, you yourselves know the things that took place. And he starts a sermon back with the baptism of John the Baptist. And you know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him, the Holy Spirit, and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and that God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things. He did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on the cross. And God raised him on the third day and granted that he should become visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen before him by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. They had heard about this man who could multiply bread or, or raise the dead. They had heard that he had been crucified, that the mobs had shouted, and that it was reported that he had been raised from the dead. They were ready to hear the message, and, and Peter says, you know the story. And he ordered us to preach to people and to solemnly testify that this one who's been appointed by God, who is Jesus? Here's a new twist to the sermon. He's the judge of the living and of the dead. Jesus is the judge of the living and of the dead. Of him, all the prophets, what we, point number seven this morning, the prophets bore witness. Of him, all the prophets bear witness through his name, everyone who believes and receives forgiveness. There's another point from this morning, earlier up there, another point from this morning that God was acting in his crucifixion and resurrection. This is just what Peter preached. There is no other gospel. Everyone who believes in him and receives forgives us sin. And while Peter is preaching these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon him. Those who were listening to the message and, and all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also for the hearing them speaking with tongues, exalting God. Wow. Wow. So while he's preaching about Jesus... He's not really wanting anything big to happen. He's not really comfortable. You know, it's Gentiles. He needs to go slow on this thing. And while he's preaching these Gentiles, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They start speaking in tongues. They all believe and they're converted. He didn't really want that to happen. That's too much. That's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words... He wasn't even through with his sermon. He hadn't given the invitation. You can't accept Jesus until the invitation. He had not given the invitation, and here they just start getting saved before they're supposed to. Reminds me of Fred Craddock one time making a hospital visit. He, went to see, he was just going to the hallway, and a lady called him over there and asked him, wasn't he one of those pastors? And he said, yes, and... Well, she asked, would you pray for me to be healed? And it wasn't one from his flock. And he, he really just, it was just awkward and he didn't want to do it. But she asked, and what do you say? And so he prayed for her. And all of a sudden she, she sat up and shouted and jumped up and she was totally healed. He wasn't expecting that. He wasn't even really wanting that. He just wanted to say his prayer and get out of the hospital room. And he said, I said to the Lord, don't you ever do that to me again. <laughs> Peter was saying, Lord, don't you ever do this to me again. 
So Peter's going, hmm. We can't really talk about this because they were baptized with the Spirit, which means God's accepted them. And if they're baptized with the Spirit, then he has no choice but to what? Baptize them with water. And so Peter thinks out loud. He's trying to process it just like you are. Look at verse 47. He didn't want to baptize them. Surely, I guess I can't refuse water, baptism, for these who've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Can he? Can I keep them out anymore? I don't suppose so. Lord's already made his decision. So, he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And they asked him to stay a few days. And that's the day and the way that the gospel broke loose for all people. Let's pray. Lord, we want the gospel to break loose too. And we want to be the church that reaches all people. In the name of Jesus, we pray.